The following talk was given by Bear Gokon Bonabakar at Zen Mountain Monastery. Gokon is a senior monastic and Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. He serves as Director of Operations at Zen Mountain Monastery and also helps run the National Buddhist Prison Sangha. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. This is from Bodhidharma's Outline of Practice. Entry by principle means relying on the teachings and realizing their guiding principle. The deeply held faith that ordinary sentient beings and enlightened ones are the same in their true nature. Yet due to adventitious and unreal obscurations, this is not able to manifest clearly. If you want to abandon the unreal and turn to the real, sit steadily and gaze at a wall. Self and other, ordinary people and enlightened ones are one and the same. Sit firmly without moving, no longer following spoken instructions. In this, you are identical with the hidden form of the true principle, a stillness without name. This is the entrance by principle. So as many of you know, Bodhidharma is credited with bringing Zen to China. He's kind of the founder of Zen, Chan, as it is known in China. But that he is historically hard to verify. Um, but scholars say that this text is the one that is most likely um, actually his teaching. And so a teaching from the very beginnings of Zen is in its own school of practice. And these words from Bodhidharma are practice instructions, guidance in how to enter the way. Entry by principle means relying on the teachings and realizing the guiding principle, the deeply held faith that ordinary sentient beings and enlightened ones are the same in their true nature. Yet due to adventitious and unreal obscurations, this is not able to manifest clearly the guiding principle of the teachings. A deep faith that you have the same nature as an enlightened being. That all beings have this same nature, Buddha nature. But it's not able to manifest because it is obscured. It is not clear because it is obscured. Can we take this in? It's helpful to take this in. That your nature, your true nature, is not different from a Buddha. I was reflecting on trying to remember whether I remembered hearing this in the early many years of my practice. And I'm not sure, I can't remember hearing it in, in these words. And yet it underlies everything that we do, all of our training and practice and study. I certainly heard it in other ways. The first time I went to Dokusan with Dada Roche, I asked him, are you a Buddha? Which I thought was pretty bold. And he said very calmly, yes, and so are you. 
wasn't sure what to do with that. And over and over again, he would say, you are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That was one of the things that he said over and over again. Each one of us, perfect and complete. And all those years of hearing him say that, I'm not sure that I sort of knew what he was saying. Not sure that I could hear what he was saying. And yet I was hearing it. Each one of us, perfect and complete. There is nothing lacking. And he would say, trust yourself. Trust yourself. And he said that in public, and he said that a lot to me in Dokusan, in private. So many times going into Dokusan with whatever I was bringing in, whatever I was upset about, struggling with, all of the self-doubt and self-criticism. And he would take it in. He was never upset by it. He was never upset by my upset. Sitting in the Dokusan room, he was manifesting his completeness completely. His trust in his completeness. And meeting me, meeting each person who came in, in their completeness. And all the things that I came in with, all of the times that I was so upset, so caught up in my upset. And sometimes he'd had something to say, he'd have some guidance, he'd have some advice. And a lot of times he would just kind of take it in and say, well, trust yourself. And I remember sometimes people would have questions, well, what, what self are you talking about? What is this self? And just say, trust yourself. Saying, trust your true self. Encouraging us, find that true self. Find your true self so that you can trust yourself. Learning to trust ourselves, we're, if we are learning that truly, we are finding our true self. There's a story I read some years ago about a student who went to Ajahn Chah, who was studying with Ajahn Chah, who was a great Thai teacher who worked with a number of Western students. Important, important teacher um, in bringing Buddhism to the West. I looked up some pictures of him. He was a very small man. A lot of the pictures... Just this big smile. But I remember reading that he was quite formidable, quite powerful, powerful presence. The student had been, had been studying with him, working with him, living with him for some time and had all of these criticisms of his teacher, of Ajahn Chah. He had developed a long list. And apparently it was really important to him to it was like this was the barrier that he was facing and needed to, felt like he needed to confront Ajahn Chah with all of his faults. And so he got up his courage and he went to him and he read his list. You do this and you don't do that. And you should be more like this. And then he kind of realized what he had done and he was like, oh God, now what's going to happen? And Ajahn Chah just took it in and said to him, well, 
it's a good thing that I have all these faults. Aren't you fortunate? Because otherwise you might go looking for a Buddha somewhere else, somewhere outside of yourself. It made me think of all the, the faults that I found in Dido, in Dido Roshi, my teacher, my first teacher, and that sometimes that I brought to him, that I took to Dokusan, I was like, what about this? I'm, I'm bothered by that. I'm bothered by this. And sometimes he was defensive, right? He didn't want to hear that. But I think he also knew that it was just a distraction. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about his faults. What was most important was not for me to see him as perfect, to see his perfection. He just kept telling me to trust myself, to find my own completeness. This past Ango, during the spring, we were, our theme was trust in Buddha nature. And I was listening, I was like, so what, what is Shugan going to say about this, about Buddha nature? And in a way, it felt like, well, he didn't say very much directly. But a few times I heard him say, your nature is peaceful. Your nature is peaceful. And so again, to hear this, to take this in. Can we take this in? Can we find this for ourselves? Bodhidharma's teaching says, a deeply held faith and so there is that. that. That can be a way in to have faith. Your nature is peaceful. But ultimately to verify that, to find that. So the faith is from your own knowing. Your nature is, com- is peaceful. It is complete as it is. You can't make a Buddha. That's not what we're trying to do. So when we are trying to do that, trying to make something, trying to fix, that can be a reminder. Bodhidharma says, all beings have Buddha nature. Yet due to adventitious and unreal obscurations, this is not able to manifest clearly. We can't see our true nature live out of our true nature, don't know it, because it is obscured. All of these different things that arise in our experience as obscurations, hindrances, all of the thoughts, emotions, moods, our views, our views of ourself, our opinions. And we get confused by these obscurations. Adventitious means happening according to chance, rather than design or inherent nature. That's the dictionary. So not fixed, not inherent. I'm not sure about that by chance, right? All things arise due to causes and conditions. But they're just coming and going. They are just arising from causes and conditions. And so all obscurations are that. 
And it is an apt description, right? Think of how things come up. A thought, emotion, a mood. Where did it come from? It can seem like it's just out of nowhere. You can't see the causes and conditions, where it started, where it came from. And yet it can, it can cover everything, cover over everything, become our view, become our experience. Sort of think of how a mood can wake up and just be grumpy, kind of be in a sour mood. And how everything is colored by that. Everything seems to verify our view, our mood. And maybe you can see that that's not what everyone else is feeling. One of the challenges and advantages of living in community, that not everyone is in my bad mood with me, not everyone is verifying it for me. How is it that the same things that look sour to me are beautiful in the same moment to the person standing next to me. What's happened? So adventitious and unreal, but not not existing. Such power, actually. How is that? What's happening? And so really important place of study. I think you could say this is where practice occurs. This is what practice is. What are these obscurations? How is it that they are obscurations? How is it that they are unreal? All of the things that capture our attention, that we put our belief in, how is it that we put our belief in them? It's hard to see that. What does that mean? So we're putting our belief in them, that we are giving them a reality that they don't have. And so part of that study is to see how we get caught. How when we're caught, we can't see past it. When we're upset, it's like that's all we can see. We've lost trust, lost touch. What is true has been obscured. Can't see it. Hard to even have faith that it is there, that that it is true. And to see, can we see how when we're stuck in a view, when we're caught in our view, how we are constantly recreating it? That is a place to look. It is created. It is not the way things actually are. And so it can be helpful just to know that that teaching. A view is just a view. Our view is just a view. Is delusion, really. We are seeing the view, our view, rather than reality itself rather than things as they are. But we think it's reality. That is our confusion. And this is happening all the time. 
But again, nothing is fixed. No thought, no emotion, no mood. Not even our views, our most deeply held opinions. They're not fixed. They're not... They come and they go. And so we should notice this. There's a Tibetan teacher who says, reflect on yesterday's anger. Where did it go? Where is it? What happened? Reflect on the pain in your knee in the previous period of zazen. Where is it now? What happened? And how does that, so in this moment, reflecting back, how does that jibe with 20 minutes ago when you were caught up in that experience, when that was the, the, the wholeness of your experience? So really any barrier we encounter, we face, that is an obscuration. That's what Bodhidharma is talking about. So just the pain in our knees, just sleepiness, our doubt, our doubts, our distraction. And you know, there can be a sense that we have to get through our barriers in order that then we'll, then we can start practicing for real. Then we'll get to the real practice. But this is the real practice, whatever it is that you're encountering. It's always where practice happens. That barrier, as mundane as it may seem, that is what is obscuring your true nature in that moment. And in a sense, the barrier is there to teach you. It is your place of entry. It is there to reveal its nature to you. We don't have to go look for barriers. They will arise. We don't get to choose which ones are ours or when they arise. And I find part of that, um, I've been feeling this, I think, um, particularly recently, seeing when I get stuck. And I know, right? I can give myself these teachings that I'm offering right now, and I do. It is empty, it will pass, it is not me. And part of the struggle, I find, is, is also this voice of, I should know better. I shouldn't be getting stuck here. So I was thinking about that. You know, there are teachings about how having some encounter with our, some insight into our nature, then we have to return to that over and over again. It's not just this one-time thing and then like we're off to the land of enlightenment. And we should hear that and see that in our teachers. I so appreciate how much our teachers are so clearly students, still practicing, still working with their own particular karma, still letting go, loosening, softening, opening. But I was thinking that that it's also that we have to get stuck over and over again. 
I see our delusion over and over again so that we can see through it, so that we can study it, so that we can release. Kind of become more and more convinced so that we can be less caught. And part of that is, is learning that our faults, if you will, our obscurations, the things that we get stuck in, we get stuck. They obscure, but they don't affect our true nature. We can lose track of our own goodness, the goodness of others. Bodhidharma says, if you want to abandon the unreal and turn to the real, sit steadily and gaze at a wall. Self and other ordinary people and enlightened ones are one and the same. Sit firmly without moving, no longer following spoken instructions. In this, you are identical with the hidden form of the true principle, a stillness without name. And so what is this wall gazing that he is instructing us to do? I've been um, reading a book about early Zen. Um, And there is some discussion about this. What was taught? Right, Zen is the meditation school. Well, so what is this meditation? And it seems that there were different practices that were taken up by practitioners who were Zen practitioners, who were Zen monastics, as we do now. And it also seems to me that it is what we are doing. The instructions that we do find are basically pointing to the same thing of calming the mind, seeing the mind, seeing into the nature of mind. Zazen is basically very simple. Maybe there's not much teaching about Zazen because in a way there's not that much to say. Sit firmly and face the wall. Face your mind. In another teaching, Bodhidharma says, behold the mind. Over and over again, he says, behold the mind. So he says, sit firmly without moving, no longer following spoken instructions. We do have instructions in Zazen. We have all received instruction in Zazen. We should take in those instructions. We do have a practice. We have teachers. We should ask them for guidance in our zazen. Check ourselves. We have to find our own way. But it's so important that we have guidance and that, we're, that we are find, so that we are, can, are finding our way, that we're practicing in accord with the Dharma that we know what our practice is and that we're doing our practice. And we can learn to just do our practice, not thinking about how to do it, not watching ourselves, not evaluating, not judging, since not worrying about the instructions anymore, knowing 
learning to give ourselves over to our practice. There's a story Tenzin Palmo tells. Tenzin Palmo was a, the first Western woman to be ordained in the tr- Tibetan tradition. She practiced in India very, very early. And the tradition that she is part of, there are these Togdens who were kind of wild, devoted, ascetic adepts who do things like jump up in the air and put their legs in full lotus and land on their cushion. Like that's how they start a period of meditation. Advanced practitioners doing advanced practices. It seems that she was sort of practicing alongside them in a sense, or practicing in the same place, seeing what they were doing, and feeling like, well, what am I doing? Am I gonna, when am I going to do that? Right? When am I going to do these advanced practices? Maybe she was you know, doing the equivalent of, of working on, with her breath, working with her breath. And she asked one of her Togden friends about this. And he said, you think you're doing something different. Why do you think we're doing something different? Just do your practice. Just do your practice. And so what is that? What is it to just do our practice? Nobody can show us how to do that. We have to find our own way. But we can trust. You can trust that your practice, knowing your practice, it is a complete practice. Sit steadily and gaze at a wall. Self and other, ordinary people and enlightened ones are one and the same. Sit firmly without moving, no longer following spoken instructions. In this, you are identical with a hidden form of the true principle, a stillness without name. It is not what we think it is. We are spiritual beings. I've been appreciating that, maybe encountering that in myself. There's a need to attend to our spiritual being, this aspect of ourselves. What happens when we don't? When we deny it or distance ourselves from it? Don't tend to it, don't care for it. And we're sentient beings emotional, psychological beings, tender. We need to take care of our emotional body, our emotional self. We deny this, push it away, cut it off, try to control it, which we're encouraged to do in some ways, which we see other people doing. We put more belief, more faith in our obscurations, more faith in our deluded views. Maybe hold on to them tighter. Then what happens? And we're mysterious beings. You know, I feel, I guess this comes up when I'm working on a talk sometimes. 
you know, this desire, and I and 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 I I think we find this just in our in our own practice in encountering our practice, this desire to understand, to explain, to explain to others. How is it that this works? And that's helpful. We need to understand that is a way of developing faith. It's helpful to a point. We have to find our own way through our own particular mysterious beingness. Learn for ourselves to be close, close, intimate with ourself, all the different parts of ourself that we encounter. In that learning how to work with this particular karmic self. Not trying to get rid of, not trying to fix. And allow ourselves to not know in the way that we're used to knowing. In the way that we want so much to know sometimes. And learn to enter in this way. In a way this is what it means to enter. So I wanted to end with a story from a sutra that I shared on Thursday night in a seminar that I did. This is the Sona Sutra, sutra where the Buddha meets with a monastic and talks about effort. Sona had been a musician before becoming a monastic and was a very devoted practitioner, was very diligent, tried really hard. And in the sutra, Sona has gotten to the point of is tried so hard, so diligent, and it feels like it's not working. He's not realizing himself and is ready to give up. And the Buddha, in his omniscience, knows this and with his special powers, transports himself, and all of a sudden, there he is standing in front of Sona. And I was thinking, like, how would that be? Right? It's like you're completely caught up in struggle and ready to give up. Right? Hasn't that happened? And like for the Buddha to appear before you and give you the advice that you need. And so he talks to Sona about effort and just saying, not too tight, not too loose. The metaphor is, is Sona's previous experience with tuning his instrument. If it was tuned too tight, the strings were too tight, it didn't work didn't make sound. If it was too loose, it didn't make sound. And so he tells Sona, you have to tune your practice just right. You have to tune your practice. But what I was most moved by was that he says this to Sona, and then he leaves, he disappears again. He leaves Sona alone again. He doesn't tell him what it means to tune his practice. Trusting that that's the only way it can be. Trusting Sona, trusting him to find his own way, trusting him to trust himself. Thank you for listening. 
To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.